The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The men in black. The men who inspired the movies. Not Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Who or what are they? And again, not Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Are they aliens? Extra top secret government officials specializing in suppressing UFO-related information? Modern folklore? Absolute and utter wackadoodle crystal-powered horseshit. Gonna look into all the possibilities today. Uh, There have been reports for decades regarding strange men interrogating or even threatening the witnesses of alien encounters. Generally, they appear as men in dark suits uh, who look human but often aren't thought to be human. There's something not quite right about their appearance. They... They look like something trying to look human, but not quite pulling it off. Their skin, maybe a little too pale, lips, a little too red. Their speech, human-ish, but not altogether human. Their mannerisms, odd, strange question here. Gary Busey-like cackle there. Who could they be? When did they first show up? What do they want? All of this and more explored on a suck that veers a little less dark than recent episodes and maybe uh, a little more fun. Let's get paranormal. Let's try to explain the unexplainable. Let's get weird today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers, for real this time. I said happy Monday on Friday's bonus episode uh, last week, uh, like a silly asshole that I sometimes am. Damn it. Be gone, Lucifina. She tricked me. She tricked me into saying Monday this past Friday. Thanks to all the wonderful space lizards, time suckers I met in Sacramento this past weekend at Punchline. Five shows, all of them had a lot of time suckers in the crowd. All were a blast. Punchline staff had the best things to say about the crowds. Man, whether the room was full or whether it was like 100 people there, man, they just loved you guys. And you guys just brought it every single show. It's fantastic. Uh, you guys ready for a little break from murder? I am. We're going to have fun today. I'm glad you're here. I am the suck master, the prophet of Nimrod. The roadie of Michael motherfucking McDonald. I'm Dan Cummins, and you are a card-carrying member of the Cults of the Curious. 
And uh, you're listening to Time Suck. So hail Nimrod. And uh, Monday mistake aside, hail Lucifina as well. Why not? Not sure why there's so much interest in hailing her. I originally thought she was evil, but now not so sure. A lot of time suckers seem to favor her over Nimrod, the cult of the curious, possibly undergoing some sort of internal schism. It's interesting. Uh, back in the suck dungeon today with the Reverend Dr. Josh Krell. So unfortunately, I can't jerk off while I'm recording like I did for the entirety of Friday's episode. Uh, how dirty do you feel right now? That never happened. Time Suck is brought to you once again by Hunchly, that Time Sucker ran awesome research company. You Time Suckers know we do a lot of research for every suck. Google searches, endless Wikipedia pages, news articles, books, forums in the dark, seedy, underbelly of the internet. I've got 100 tabs open in halftime. I, I don't know how I ended up down so many of the rabbit holes I find myself in. Damn you, Lucifina, be gone. Well, let me tell you about a tool that helps put an end to the madness. It's called Hunchly. Hunchly kicks ass. Uh, you turn it on when you're using Google Chrome, and it captures, which is my preferred uh, search browser, by the way, and it captures and keeps track of every page you visit so that you never forget where you've been. Uh, the best part is that Hunchly does this automatically, so you never have to stop your research to worry about taking screenshots or copying and pasting URLs. You can tag pages to keep them organized, take notes on interesting pages, clip photographs, all from the intuitive Hunchly dashboard. Hunchly can even track phone numbers, email addresses, names, whatever other piece of information is relevant for your investigation. Notify you when those pieces of information are found on the page you're looking at. And so much more. It's used by podcasters. Hunchly is used by police officers, private investigators, journalists, cybersecurity researchers, financial investigators all over the world. And to get 15% off on your Hunchly purchase, head to hunch.ly and use Coupon code TIMESUCK. That's H-U-N-C-H dot L-Y. Or just go to the TimeSuck app, go to the TimeSuck webpage, head to the sponsor section, and click their logo. We love Hunchly, and we know you will too. Uh, and today's TimeSuck is also brought to you by your new dad. Uh, did your mom tell you? She needed some new D. Needed some new D in her bedroom, and she got some. Welcome welcome him into your family and your life. No, that's ridiculous. TimeSuck is brought to you once again by Theo Vaughn. And his fantastical This Past Weekend podcast. Theo is one of my favorite comics to watch. And, and his podcast is a joy to listen to. On This Past Weekend, new episodes drop on Mondays, just like Time Suck. And most weeks he drops uh, a This Past Thursday episode on, uh, you guessed it, on Thursdays. And on This Past Weekend, Theo talks about life like only his crazy Louisiana ass can. What he's been up to, what's going on in his world, what you may have been up to. Last week he had special guest Eddie Bravo in to chat. Eddie is a conspiracy theorist podcaster, renowned jujitsu instructor. Who's in this week? Callers, his producer, your uncle Donald McRonald. Listen and find out. Uh, Theo is a captivating storyteller who's led and continues to lead a super interesting life. So check out his fucking podcast already. Listen, like, subscribe to This Past Weekend with Theo Vaughn, you mother suckers. Link in today's episode description. And uh, and I know a lot of uh, Theo fans uh, fans of this past week are now Time Suckers, so thank you for making the jump. Thanks to all of you who found uh, Time Suck from uh, BertCast, The Church of What's Happening Now, Small Town Murder, Mediocre Time with Tom and Dan, The Crab Feast, Astonishing Legends, Fantasy Footballers, Into the Gray, Hello from the Magic Tavern, The Johnny Dare Show, so many under, other excuse me wonderful shows that support Time Suck. Uh, love that all of you are, are now on board. Uh, listenership has been way up lately, and we, and we appreciate it greatly. Uh, hey, remember 17 years ago when I said I'd have open houses from time to time where you could stop by and chat, check out the suck dungeon, make me wear a clown nose, give you a handy behind the dumpster? Well, it's finally happening. Everything but the handy dumpster part. 
May 29th, I believe it's a Tuesday, May 29th, three, I'm gonna, now I'm going to verify that because I didn't write down the exact day of the week, and you guys know based on last, last episode how well I fucking track days of the week. Yes, it is a Tuesday, May 29th, for sure Tuesday, 3 to 7 p.m. in the Sandalwood Business Center where we have a cool hidden suck dungeon inside a sad building that looks like where the last three remaining Radio Shack employees have gathered to plan their final days working for a bankrupt company. We're letting anyone who wants to come in, come on in. We'll have snacks, some catered stuff from what I understand. We're going to have some drinks. We're probably going to have the dogs, those double doodles, Penny and Ginger. You can swing by and you can watch them fight to the death. Two doodles enter a cage, one doodle leaves. Doodle Thunderdome. Doodle fight. It's a popover. Uh, Put some sights to the sounds. Meet some fellow time suckers and space lizards at 2215 East Sherman Ave, Suite 109, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Address in the episode description. And if you haven't done so already, now is an awesome time to become a space lizard. The app is working better and better. And if you're like, well, it isn't working for me, well, email Bitelixer like I've told you a thousand fucking times. Right? They're going to get back to you. It's timesuck app at bitelixer.co. They're going to make it work for the 2% of you at most who it's not working for. Uh, and, and, and little glitches and little uh, other things are getting worked out all the time. It's getting better and better and better. Uh, and it's going to be uh, just more and more awesome. You can also uh, email Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-E at timesuckpodcast.com, right? She'll make sure you're getting some help. And, right, and, I, and I say this because right now the secret suck. It's more interesting by far than ever. We're breaking down a 50-minute MP3 of my soul energy reading. I got a soul energy reading uh, from David Icke's Welsh psychic, the one he meets with regularly, the one he's met with for over 20 years, the, the seer who steers Ike's visions of reptilian madness. And she has a lot of weird shit to say about my future. A lot of lizard talk, a lot of dark energy talk. I have a mission apparently as important as Ike's mission, and it's glorious. And since we're over the $10,000 goal, uh, we're also giving money to charities now. The more lizards we get, the more, more money charities get. It's the fucking best. A uh, couple quick dates, and then Men in Black, I promise. May 31st through June 3rd, Flat Earth Tour hits Tempe. Tempe Improv, special guest Gareth Reynolds from the Dollop Podcast. Pumped. June 8th and 9th, bringing the Flat Earth Mockery to the Draft House in Washington, D.C. Tickets on sale. June 15th and 16th, Funny Bone, Des Moines, Iowa. Two nights only. Hopefully, some real Flat Earthers will wander in that show by mistake. July 15th. Doing my next live Time Suck podcast in Orlando to Orlando Improv with uh, with Tom and Dan from the Mediocre Time Show, right? And several stand-up shows. It's going to be great. More tour dates at dancummins.tv, La Jolla, Dayton, Tampa, Palm Beach, Chicago, Sunnyvale, Portland, Tacoma, Columbus, your mom's panic room, Grand Rapids, your dad's crawl space, and more. All right, enough self-promotion. Let's dig into the weird stacked on more weird that is the mythology of the men in black. Nineteen forty-seven. That's when all the men in black shit started going down. That's when a giant wave of UFO sightings kicked off in general in America. Uh, it's been a minute now, but we talked about this at length way back in bonus episode two, just the second bonus episode, uh, only a little over a year ago in February two thousand seventeen. Feels like a lifetime ago. And, and we stated in that episode that there have been reported sightings of UFOs going back to the dawn of human civilization. But in 1947, uh, the volume of sightings increased dramatically in the United States. And suddenly, uh, they became a little more consistent in their descriptions. It was flying saucers now. Everyone's seen flying saucers. Kenneth Arnold, that's where it began. Uh, Ufologists know that name well. Kenneth was an American amateur pilot who claimed he saw nine 
crescent-shaped objects in the sky on June 24, 1947, while flying near Mount Rainier in Washington State. This was the first publicized American UFO sighting that really got some traction with the mainstream media. Uh, And this is a sighting that coined the term flying saucer. Uh, When a local newspaper misquoted Kenneth, describing the way the objects flew as being like saucers skipping on water, uh, he said flying saucers, uh, and then it stuck. Kenneth's story kicked off a nationwide interest in UFOs. Suddenly a Kansas carpenter, he's claiming he sees nine discs. A couple days later, pilot in Oklahoma sees nine discs, like the following week as well. Also that year, the Roswell incident occurs, the most famous UFO incident in U.S. history. The Roswell incident happened a week later on the evening of July 2nd, 1947, when several witnesses in and near Roswell, New Mexico, a.k.a. America's butthole, for you diehard Time Suck listeners, observed a disc-shaped object moving swiftly in a northwesterly direction through the sky. The following morning, Mac Brazel, a foreman of a local ranch with a badass fucking ranch name. Of course he's a foreman of a local ranch. He's, he's fucking Mac Brazel. Right? He's not he's not Willard McSkippy. No, he's Mac Brazel. And he rode on a horseback to move sheep from one field to another. Accompanying him was a young neighbor boy, Timothy D. Proctor. Uh, and as they rode, they came upon strange debris, various sized chunks of metallic material uh, to all appearances, some kind of aircraft that exploded. Brazel claimed that he picked up some of the pieces. Uh, he had never seen anything like them. They were extremely light, very tough. The material included tinfoil, rubber strips, and sticks. You know, the stuff you build alien shuttles out of. <laughs> the following month, he took the items to the Roswell Sheriff, who in turn contacted the Roswell Army Airfield. After collecting the wreckage, the RAAF issued an extraordinary press release that stated that a flying disc had been retrieved from a local ranch. The Roswell Daily Record immediately picked up the press release, and on July 8th, the story was printed with the headline, RAAF Captures Flying Saucer on Ranch in Roswell Region. And then national UFO hysteria is kicked off uh, when other papers also carry that headline and story. Almost immediately, the military announces a retraction. They announced that uh, the saucer had actually been a weather balloon carrying a radar target, a device uh, somewhat like a, like a box kite. That's what it looks like. Made of foiled paper, fastened to balsa wood frame. Again, we talked about all this in that bonus episode too. And then the, and then the world has really been debating uh, what happened ever since. Was it just a weather balloon or was it uh, you know a flying saucer that the government was covering up? You know? Were a couple actual extraterrestrials also found? That's a big part of that mystery. Were they taken to Area 51 in Nevada? Have other extraterrestrials also been taken to Area 51? Are there a shit ton of aliens at Area 51? Are the real Pootie and Juju being held hostage at Area 51? Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Put what in my lunchbox, Pootie? The aliens, Juju. The aliens. Put them all in your lunchbox and head to Sector 7. I have to go back and grab Weeble. I'll meet you there. No, Pootie, it's too late for Weeble. I have to grab him. They'll kill him. They'll kill Weeble. They'll kill you, Pootie. Don't you die on me. Don't you die on me, Pootie. Wow. Woo. What just happened? Why would Pootie and Juju be held at Area 51? Who the hell is Weeble? Did I have a minor stroke? Also, 1947, the men in black make their first reported appearance when a waterlogged, uh, excuse me, waterlog retriever, <laughs> that's going to make sense in a little bit, named Harold Dahl, claims to have been visited by a man in a dark suit who promises to harm him if he discloses his sighting of unidentified flying objects around Tacoma, Washington, the day before Kenneth Arnold supposedly saw those nine discs and what would become known in ufology lore as the Maury Island Mystery or the Maury Island Incident. 
And with this mysterious incident, we kick off today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. June 21st, 1947. A man named Harold Dahl was on his patrol boat in the Puget Sound with two other men. His son, named Christopher, in some accounts, uh, named Charles and others, and their dog. Harold collected logs floating around in the sound and resold them to local lumber mills. Uh, what you got to say? Sounds like an odd, odd way to make a living. Uh, wait, wait, uh, what do you do? Uh, I get river logs. I bring them to the mills. Oh, so you're, uh, you're a logger. No, I'm a, lo- I'm a water log finder. I find water logs. Mm-hmm. H- how many logs are in the water? Is there enough logs to make a living? Reckon sometimes is enough. Sometimes you find logs. Uh, sometimes logs find you. Mm-hmm. What? Life is like a river of logs. Huh? Sometimes I pretend that the logs are uncut surfboards. Call myself a log rider. Mm-hmm. Uh, come again? Touch it. Touch my river log. Put your lips on it. Mm-hmm. What? No. Anyway, around two in the afternoon, Dahl's boat approaches the east shore of Maury Island. Maury Island is now attached to Vashon Island by Causeway Road. It's about six miles west of Des Moines, Washington. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Des Moines popped up in last Monday's Gary Ridgeway Green River Killer Suck. We're back in that clean weaned bedwetters stomping grounds. Dahl would claim that he looked in the sky, saw six objects floating about 2,000 feet above his ship. The objects were made of some reflective metal, donut-shaped, about 100 feet in diameter. The center holes were about 25 feet in diameter. Man, floating donuts, that sounds fun. Uh, Dahl said he, uh, he also found round portholes and what he thought was an observation window. Five of the craft circled over the six, which dropped slowly and seemed to be malfunctioning. It was tipping at precarious angles. It was shuddering. Then it stopped, hovered about five, 500 feet above the water. Dahl put to shore because he was afraid the center aircraft was going to crash into his boat. Once ashore, Dahl took several pictures with his camera. The lower ship stayed in position for about five minutes, with the others still circling above. Uh, One of the ships left the formation, moved down, touching the lower ships. The two kept contact for several minutes. Then Dahl said he heard a thud, and suddenly thousands of pieces of what he thought were newspapers dropped from inside of the center ship. Most of the debris landed in the bay. Some hit the beach. Dahl recovered a few pieces, finding it was a white lightweight metal along with the white metal the ship dropped about 20 tons of dark metal which he said uh looked like lava rock uh when the lava rock hit the water it was so hot that steam erupted uh they took cover after several pieces landed on his boat uh damaging it some debris hit his son in the arm uh either burning his son or breaking his arm or both depending on which account of the story you read and another piece allegedly killed his dog so too bad he didn't have bojangles Bojangles would have sidestepped that alien lava bullshit, jumped into the spaceship, chewed on a couple little green men until they apologized for burning Christopher Charles. After that rain of metal, the craft rose into the air, headed west out to the sea, and uh, Dahl went into his boat, tried to radio for help, but the radio didn't work. Fucking aliens messing up the signal, doing their alien, you know, messing things up kind of stuff. They sailed back towards the dock, dropped the dog over the side as a burial at sea, which seems very... Suspicious to me. Your dog is killed by an alien. Like, should we bring this? Uh, should we bring the dog back though to, to to show everybody and have an autopsy to confirm what kind of weird stuff killed the dog? No, no, no. Just throw just throw in the ocean. Just throw throw him in the ocean. Uh, Dahl took his son to the hospital for treatment. Told his boss Fred Christman what had happened, and then supposedly all four men on the boat told their story to police, and supposedly their story was consistent. However, good luck 
finding a police officer or a police record that verifies any of this. Good luck even finding the names of the other two crewmen on board with Dahl and his son. And then Chrisman, Dahl's boss or, or friend or uh, even one of the dudes on the boat, depending on which account of the story you read. Again, the story yeah, seems to drift around a bit. Uh, apparently has the prints developed. And the prints show these strange airships. However, the negatives have spots on them. This makes them think that it's damaged by exposure or some kind of radiation. Chrisman then gathers uh, some rock samples, you know, and said that while he was gathering the rocks, one of the airships appears overhead as if it was watching him. And then Dahl told investigators the next morning, man wearing a black suit visits him. Here we go. Man in black shows up. One of those bastards. And the man in black suggests they go to breakfast together. Okay, that doesn't, uh, I gotta say, that doesn't seem too bad, actually. Doesn't seem very menacing. Some dude shows up, wants to wants to take you to a free breakfast. You know, I don't know. Usually I don't advocate going somewhere with a stranger. But early in the morn, I might go grab a couple free daytime pancakes, couple couple waffles, maybe something like that, you know, with some fruitcake. Uh, Dahl said he drove his own car following the stranger's new black Buick to a local restaurant. While they ate, the stranger asked no questions. Instead, he gave a detailed account of what Dahl had already seen. Interesting. The man in black warned Dahl that bad things would happen to Dahl and to his family if he told anyone about the incident. Damn, that, damn it, that's where the menace comes in. Son of a bitch had to ruin a perfectly good breakfast. With the old bad things are going to happen to your family if you talk mumbo-jumbo. Well, despite the threat, Dahl and Chrisman supposedly send a package of some debris to Ray Palmer, a.k.a. Adam. DC Universe superhero, originally a physics professor working at Ivy University. He develops equipment to shrink himself to subatomic levels using white dwarf star material. No, that's a, that's a different Ray Palmer. No, they send the uh, package to Amazing Stories publisher Raymond A. Palmer. Amazing Stories was a science fiction magazine continuously published from 1926 until the 1990s. Uh, it was published on and off in different carnations until 2014, and it was it was ridiculed off and on for presenting obvious fiction as fact. Uh, Palmer would, would later begin publishing Fate magazine in 1948, which would be billed as the world's leading magazine of the paranormal. That magazine is still in publication, and its inaugural edition featured a cover story about Kenneth Arnold's 1947 Mount Rainier UFO encounter. Uh, over the years, Fate magazine has also covered other suck topics like the Bermuda Triangle, Lost City of Atlantis, and the Amityville Horror Story. Well, the package they sent was said to have contained a box of metal fragments, statements about the strange happenings on the 21st and 22nd of July. Then a few weeks later, Palmer contacted Kenneth Arnold, right? His name keeps coming up here. Uh, again, that's that dude who saw the flying saucers, Mount Rainier. And because uh, uh, that guy had recently begun investigating UFOs. And then Arnold arrived in Tacoma in late July with airline pilot E.J. Smith. The two of them, two of them meet with Dahl and Chrisman, examine Dahl's boat and conduct some interviews. Uh, Dahl and Chrisman uh, do not produce the pictures, however. Dahl uh, also told Arnold that his son had disappeared. How convenient. Dahl would later say that his son was found waiting tables in Montana, but he, but he just couldn't remember how he got there. Those damn men in black, they got a hold of poor Christopher Charles. Raced his memory with their little men in black tool. Sent him off to wait tables in Montana. How convenient. I mean, terrible. Then after being contacted by Kenneth Arnold on the afternoon of July 31st, Captain Lee Davidson and First Lieutenant Frank Brown of the U.S. Army Air Force fly to Tacoma from Hamilton Field in California to investigate this matter. Now, this part, as far-fetched as it may sound, definitely seems to be true because the U.S. government did really begin to investigate UFO sightings. Uh, they did start Project Sign in 1948, 
Project Grudge in 1949, and Project Blue Book in 1952. All stuff covered in detail in that bonus suck. And, uh, you know, all stuff that was declassified years later. Uh, there were projects run by the Air Force with an unknown amount of CIA oversight as well. Uh, or these were projects, I'm sorry, those were run by the CIA. And then in 1947, uh, you know, there, so I'm sorry, in 1947, there was governmental interest. So that part does to me sound legit. In addition to being pilots, these two men were intelligence specialists. Uh, they met with Arnold Dahl and Chrisman for several hours, supposedly took a box of debris the men had gathered from the site. And then the officers left that night. This is also able to be verified. They were uh, in a hurry uh, to get to Hamilton Field on August 1st because the, the Air Force was going to have a, a ceremony uh, in honor of it splitting from the Army into its own brand-new military branch. Uh, the two officers fly out of McCord Air Force, Airfield around 2 o'clock in the morning on a B-25 bomber with a crew of two other men. Uh, apparently, the plane had recently passed inspection. And then about 20 minutes later after takeoff, the airplane crashes into the remote wilderness outside of Kelso, Washington. The two enlisted men managed to parachute to safety. Davidson and Brown were killed, making them the newly formed Air Force's first casualties. And dun, 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 coincidence? Or did those men in black have their alien buddies shoot them out of the sky? Well, the local newspapers and FBI supposedly received phone calls stating that the plane was shot down to cover up the information Brown and Davidson had found. Because of the loss of life, the Air Force broadened its investigation. The FBI launched their own. Uh, the Air Force investigators determined that the crash had been a terrible accident. I don't believe those calls about it being shut down. One of the engines caught fire, and uh, and the men began bailing out before Brown and Davidson could jump out. A wing broke and struck the tail section, which also broke off. The plane went into a spin, trapping those men inside. Another Air Force investigator spoke with Dahl and Chrisman and visited their boat. He stated that the damage he saw did not match the damage the two sailors described. There were no piles of metal on Maury Island, and the existing samples looked like slag from a metal smelter. Uh, and they didn't produce the film. Uh, of their supposed pictures. Uh, his conclusion matched that of the FBI investigator that Dahl and Christman had faked the incident to gain publicity for a magazine article. Uh, the FBI warned Dahl and Christman that their hoax had not succeeded and that if they uh, dropped the matter, the government would not prosecute the two men for fraud, which had indirectly resulted in the deaths of two officers. And uh, at first, Dahl and Christman went along with this. They made statements that the story was fake. They refused to give interviews on the matter. But then a few years later, in the January 1950 issue of Fate magazine, Chrisman stated that the incident did happen. And Kenneth Arnold included the Maury Island incident in his 1952 book, The Coming of the Saucers. Uh, today, most people do believe that Chrisman and Dahl faked the incident, perpetuating a hoax that got out of control. Again, because no damage to the Dahl's boat could be found. His son didn't show any signs of injuries. There's no evidence that a dog even existed uh, <laughs> with that family. Uh, the fragments of the saucer that were reportedly, you know, recovered were traced back to a nearby copper smelter. So, you know, couple of little holes in their otherwise airtight story. Uh, the mysterious men in black could have easily been investigators calling the whole thing a hoax and warning Chrisman and Dahl about retelling their story, uh, warning them they'd face fraud charges. Uh, to make the story even weirder and less credible, Chrisman would later be questioned about him being one of the men on the grassy knoll. <laughs> For other stuff he had stated... After JFK's assassination, also prior to this incident, Chrisman had written into Amazing Stories, uh, claiming that he battled mysterious and evil underground creatures to, <laughs> to free himself from a cave in Burma during World War II. So, you know, maybe not the most credible source. Uh, solid reputation of truth-telling, other, other than a lot of talk about ending up in a Burmese cave in World War II. 
somehow not with other soldiers. Somehow he got separated from his group. And then he had to battle evil monsters that no one else ever saw to, to get out of this cave. Other than that, other than that one little thing, he seems like a straight shooter. Uh, later, Chris would also reinvent himself as Dr. John Gold, an ultra right wing talk show host at KAYE Radio that aired in Tacoma from the late 60s <laughs> into the early 70s. And uh, there's an article I found about that. And this guy, former Tacoma mayor and president of the Tacoma Historical Society, Bill Barsma. He uh, spoke of Chrisman's uh, style of radio commentary in a recent interview about this Mort Island mystery. He said, we referred to it as radio hate. Everything was fake news that promoted conspiracy theories about local government and secret deals that were based on secret sources and tips rather than facts and logic. Oh, how much of that is out there now? Uh, Sounds like he may have had a big influence on Alex Jones. Uh, This kind of guy being involved in this tale for me makes it read as utter and complete wackadoodle nonsense. Uh, Despite Chrisman's super shady reputation, some believe that the U.S. government was behind a conspiracy regarding the Morty Island sighting that may have involved anything from UFOs to dumping nuclear waste in Puget Sound. Uh, They believe a shadow government agency, of course they do, or or UFOs sabotage the B-25 bomber in order to eliminate the investigators and blame Dahl and Chrisman. Uh, Some investigators recently visited the crash site hoping to find some some of those strange rocks to prove uh, things one way or the other. But so far... Uh, nothing has been found uh, because similar to the Oak Island mystery, uh, nothing is there. Uh, so while they weren't yet being called the Men in Black, the first published tale of Men in Black type dudes appeared in that January 1950 issue of Fate magazine. Uh, you know, supposedly first happened in 1947. And then the Maury Island tale would be told again in Kenneth Arnold's 1952 book, as I said, The Coming of the Saucers, uh, which if it were only made into a film would then for sure be made into a porn parody called The Coming of the Balls. But that doesn't have anything to do with today's story. Uh, Just like in that Fate magazine issue, uh, the threatening breakfast buyer wasn't referred to as a man in black or anything. So, you know, new tales of encounters with these type of guys didn't quite take off yet. There wasn't really lore about the men in black yet because they didn't have a cool, marketable name. Uh, The next development in the mythology of the men in black would occur in 1952. uh, And it would revolve around an interesting man by the name of Albert Bender. Albert Bender was was perhaps the most influential and prominent ufologist of the 1950s and 60s. Uh, he was an eccentric dude born on June 16th, 1921 in Doria, Pennsylvania. He was drawn to the supernatural as a, as a teen, and he fashioned haunted house decorations and horror movie scenes on his bedroom walls. He was a curious and interesting young man, once featured in a newspaper article when he was 18 for writing to people all over the world. He wrote letters to correspondents in various countries, including Peru. England, Romania, Japan. These letters were up to 20 pages in length, handwritten. Like I said, dude was very eccentric. Uh, He liked to collect things from different countries like coins or sand through writing his correspondences during high school. He was also part of the American Youth League. He was elected the junior vice president and was elected national treasurer in October uh, of his 1941 school year. He was no slouch. He was a go-getter. And then he served in the U.S. Army's Air Corps in World War II. Once again, served uh, or once served, excuse me, as an editor for an army paper in Langley. And then after the war, he lived in his stepfather's attic for a time in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and uh, decorated his attic bedroom uh, like a serial killer might. Uh, he became fascinated with the, with the dark side of life in general, everything from Gothic literature, from the likes of Shelley and Poe to the occult, black magic, Ouija boards, all that was within his wheelhouse. He transformed his uh, little attic room 
uh, into this dark, dark place filled with all manner of paintings of demons and black cats and skeletons, vampires, bats, skulls, even had an altar of sorts. Uh, again, eccentric. Uh, based on what he'd say about it later, at least he did have to seem to have a sense of humor about how odd he was. He'd say, visitors were often shaken up and uncomfortable as I laughed heartily at their nervousness and amused myself by relating ghost stories at times. My friends eventually decided they enjoyed the spooky atmosphere, and that probably was another reason for my fixing up the Chamber of Horrors. By painting grotesque scenes and faces upon the walls of the room, and after about eight months, I'd done so good a job that it almost frightened me when I stood back and looked at it all one evening. No wonder my friends found it fascinating. For so many of the ghostly characters appeared to be looking straight at me, no matter where I might stand in the room. Fuck that. Not me. I'm, ne- I'm never sleeping in a room like that. I like weird shit. Uh, you know, I like to, like to visit like an odd museum. You know, like the Museum of Torture in Amsterdam or the Museum of Death in New Orleans. But then I like to leave. You know, I, uh, I'm not going to sleep there. I'm not going to turn my bedroom into some horror movie set. Then after the Flying Saucer reports 1947... When Bender is 20, 26, he takes up an interest in aliens as well. A strong interest became his main interest. Uh, Albert was known to have an obsessive, compulsive type, uh, type of personality, causing him to fixate on various things like his own mortality, on you know, the likelihood of getting cancer. He, he wasn't dating. Uh, he was an obsessive type dude who, li- who loved fringe ideas and beliefs, uh, You know, not getting laid, still living at home, putting all his energy into aliens. Uh, what do you do with no sex, a lot of time, and an overly fixated mind? Well, you decide to create a network of fellow alien enthusiasts, fellow alien investigators. And in April of 1952, Bender establishes the International Flying Saucer Bureau, the IFSB, to which countless reports of sightings and activity begin to pour in. And he also begins to publish the pulp sci-fi magazine Space Review. Uh, After saying his name several times, I started to wonder if Bender, the robot from Futurama, was named after Albert Bender. Uh, No, if you're wondering that too. Uh, that Bender was named after John Bender from The Breakfast Club, the heartthrob bad boy played by a young Judge Nelson for some random trivia. Uh, in the early 1950s, when America was still going through, you know, that UFO craze, there was a lot of uh, info for Albert to report on. Let's, let's talk about some of the incidents that led him to his infamous Men in Black encounter, right? The one that would really establish Men in Black as a proper phenomenon in paranormal circles. Between July 12th and July 29th, 1952, the Washington flap would occur. This is also known as the invasion of Washington or the DC UFO incident. And this transpires when an unprecedented number of UFO sightings are officially reported in the DC area. Uh, started at 1140 PM on Saturday, July 19th, 1952 air traffic controller at the Washington national airport by the name of Edward Nugget spots seven objects on his radar that were 15 miles South Southwest of DC. Uh, they were not supposed to be there. No craft was scheduled in that area at that time, nor were they flying on any of the flight paths for that area. Harry Barnes, the senior traffic controller on site, stated, We knew immediately that a very strange situation existed. Their movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary aircraft. The radar was checked. Everything seemed to be working properly. Soon there were unidentified objects spread throughout the radar scope, some Over our national sites, such as the White House and U.S. Capitol, the Air Force immediately notified. Barnes follows up with the National Airport's radar-equipped tower and learns that the controllers uh, had seen strange blips on their screens as well and had also seen a bright hovering light in the sky that had an explosive burst of speed. On one of the runways at Capital Airlines, uh, uh, excuse me, on one of the runways, a Capital Airlines pilot S.C. Pierman waited for permission to take off, initially thinking he had seen a meteor. 
He was told about what the control tower's radar had detected and that the objects appeared to be closing in on his position. Pyramid claimed to observe six different unidentified objects, white, tailless, fast-moving lights. Barnes, who had been in contact with Pyramid during the sightings, later said that each sighting coincided, coincided with the pip we could see near his plane. When he reported that the light streaked off at a high speed, it disappeared on our scope. Andrews Air Force Base stated that they had not found or seen any odd happenings on their radar, but then Airman William Brady witnessed a ball of fire with a type of trailing tail. When he attempted to alert others in the AFB tower, it left at a high speed. Personnel believed there were meteors and stars. One proved to just be uh, exactly that. Staff Sergeant Charles Davenport reported an orangish red light in the southern area and described the light by saying that it would appear to stand still, then make an abrupt change in direction and altitude, and that this happened several times. In one particularly strange incident, the radar centers at National Airport and Andrews Air Force Base were both following an unidentified object that was hovering when it completely vanished from the radar at all of the radar centers simultaneously. At 3 a.m., just as two Lockheed F-94 Starfire fighter jets from the U.S. Air Force were about to arrive, all of these objects vanish. But then, when those same jets run low on fuel and have to land, the objects reappear and continue to be detected until 5.30 a.m. Well, the news media picks up on this story and a frenzy ensues. Uh, even the commander, U.S. Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt of Project Blue Book, learned about it from the news prior to any briefing. He encountered difficulty at every turn, lack of information, lack of transportation, lack of any sense of urgency by Pentagon officials, and made no progress in his investigation into what had actually happened. And then at 8.15 p.m. on Saturday, July 26, a National Airlines pilot and stewardess sees strange lights above their craft. Shortly thereafter, Washington National Airport and Andrews Air Force Base found more unidentified objects on their radar. One commander visually saw them reported that they did not act like meteors or stars, that they were moving at extraordinary speeds with no visible tail behind them. Before long, Albert M. Chop of Project Blue Book made his way to the control tower of National Airport to view the radar screens. At this time, roughly 9.30 in the evening, radars picking up images of aircraft in all sectors. The objects are moving erratically, some traveling forward, then reversing direction quickly, others appearing to hover in place, others clocking in at speeds of 7,000 miles an hour. Uh, the Air Force sends two fighter jets into the area to investigate. Captain John McHugo, piloting the lead jet, sees nothing, even while flying in the midst of numerous objects being reported on radar. Lieutenant William Patterson reportedly saw four glowing lights, gave chase at maximum speed, but could not catch or identify them. Then in the dark hours of July 27th, Major Dewey Fournette from Project Blue Book and Navy Radar Specialist Lieutenant John Holcomb arrive and conclude that everyone within the radar room that night and morning concurred that the objects were of metallic construct, giving the way in which the radar was picking them up. All were aware of the slightly elevated local temperature and the occasional weather targets and weather interference with radar, and all had seen and dismissed those incidents from the other concerning and unidentified displays. And then the largest press conference since World War II is held shortly after to try and quiet the growing unease in the public and the media frenzy that ensues. It was announced that the temperature, some kind of temperature inversion, had led to errors. Some sightings, uh, you know, could be easily explained as, as misidentified objects and that changes in the atmospheric pressure had created optical illusions that had made lights appear to be moving or changing when indeed they were not. Many in attendance at the radar readings, those experts in the field who were present for those events on those June nights, disagreed strongly with the official statements, but were given limited platform to voice their disagreeing opinions. 
Uh, the hundreds of calls and claims of witnessings, uh, people witnessing the events were publicly discredited, and that was all that mattered. That was the end of it as far as the government side. Cannot believe I didn't come across that incident when I did that UFO extravaganza bonus suck. That was a big deal. Even President Truman was alarmed by it. CIA historian Gerald Haynes, in his 1997 history of the CIA's involvement with UFOs, also mentions Truman's concern, saying a massive buildup of sightings over the United States in 1952, especially in July, quote, alarmed the Truman administration. Uh, unlike the doll, unlike doll and Christmas tale, this one is harder for me to write off. You know, if it was meteors, well, then how did they change direction? How does a temperature inversion create all those sightings? I mean, I'm no meteorologist, you know, but it seems very, very strange. That's, that's and that's kind of like uh, where I'm at with these, like you know, alien ones. It's like you know, sometimes you do read something like that. Where you're like, okay, I mean, that's that seems like something definitely could have happened. Uh, but then you, know, you read so many other things, like uh, like those two nuts, those two wackadoodles version of what they saw in Maury Island. You're like, well, that that part fucking did not happen. Um, it was these sightings that led the CIA to form, uh, you know, something we did talk about in that alien bonus set called the Robertson Panel. It was a panel headed by mathematician and physicist Howard Robertson mathematical physics professor at the California Institute of Technology in Princeton, frequent White House and military advisor regarding advanced weapon systems. And this Robertson and his staff of literal geniuses oversaw the findings of Project Blue Book just to make sure the Air Force didn't miss something when it came to extraterrestrial sightings. So the, so the government really was taking this stuff very seriously in the late 40s, you know, in early 50s. So th- this is the cultural climate in which Albert Bender is living. You know, and and obviously this is going to feed his already strong interest in UFOs. You know, he he wants to see something. He wants to be part of it. And now we get into the uh, the the origin story, the real origin story of of the Men in Black. On July thirtieth, nineteen fifty two, a series of bizarre events transpires that fathers the cultural knowing and naming of the Men in Black. Beginning when Bender receives a phone call that uh, only provided silence from the other end and the overwhelming feeling of someone listening. Goddamn men in black are making crank calls. Probably going to call him back and just ask him stuff like, is, is your refrigerator running? It is. Well, then go catch it. Click. Maybe call him back later and be like, do you have Prince Albert in the can? Yes. Well, then let him out. Click. Damn you, men in black with your lame-ass 1950s pranks. You're cruising for a bruising, daddy-o. Get bent, you goof. I'm going to go ape if you don't stop with your Mickey Mouse tomfoolery, you nosebleed. Put an egg in your shoe and beat it. Shortly after receiving this phone call of menacing silence, uh, Bender's head begins to ache and spin, forcing him to call it a night. He doesn't think it's a coincidence. Those damn men in black have put some kind of head, headache curse on him. Either instinct or paranoia tells him that someone is keeping an eye on him. They don't have good intent. They don't like how diligently he's covering all these recent sightings. They don't want him to get to the bottom of what he's looking into. When I think about Bender... Uh, I think about Agent Mulder from the X-Files, David Duchovny. Uh, show creator Chris Carter had to have been very familiar with Bender when he came up with that wonderful show. Uh, in the following days, Bender gets confirmation that his instincts regarding being monitored are, in fact, correct. One night, while walking home, he gets the distinct impression that he's being followed. He's suddenly filled with dread, afraid for his very safety. He quickens his movements, hastens his, his walk to his attic home. When he reaches his door in the home... He sees what he appears to be a strange glow coming from under it, and he notices that it smells almost of burning sulfur. He goes in anyway and is shocked to find his own mother wearing some sexy-ass J.C. Penny lingerie, lighting his naked, 
bent over stepfather's farts and some sort of horrific sex ritual they're doing in his room for some reason. Warming up for some aggressive pegging. Aha! This explains the sulfurous smell, the glow under the door, the not feeling very well the other day. His stepfather's been crop dusting him. He vomits. He realizes he has to find a new place to live, has to strike out on his own. He'll never be able to look at his stepfather or mother in the eye ever again. Now, now upon entering, Bender, uh, he sees some type of shimmering object floating or hovering in his room that instantly disappears when he turns on the light. Mm-hmm. Turn on the light also leads him to discovering that, uh, you know, his, his multitude of research files and papers have been tampered with. He had to have been so happy and angry about that at the same time. Just, holy shit, I just had an extraterrestrial encounter. This is awesome. Oh, shit, those aliens just messed up all of my alien research. Damn it. Well, over the course of the next few months, Bender feels like he's been watched and followed all the time. In November 1952, he's out at a movie theater alone, and he's suddenly again filled with unease and dread. He's overcome with the feeling that he's being watched, so he calmly takes his hand off of his penis, zips up his pants, and does not get to finish either himself or singing in the rain. No, after feeling like he's being watched, he notices that in a nearby seat, a darkly clad man has appeared out of nowhere. He'd later describe what happened in an interview. I fancied someone had eyes upon me. With a prickly sensation on the back of my neck, began to fidget in my seat. Suddenly I felt the presence of a person in the seat next to me, though nobody had been there previously. I had heard nobody enter and sit down. I took a quick glance, without turning my head, saw a man sitting there. Then the eyes drew my attention. I turned my head facing him and found myself looking straight into two strange eyes, like little flashlight bulbs lighting up on a dark face. The eyes seemed to burn right into me. I felt a spinning in my head and the movie screen blurred. I blinked my eyes several times, then closed them for a few seconds. When I opened them, the man was gone, yet I heard no movement. Uh, Bender said that his eyes glowed brightly, and the feeling of dizziness that came on made him feel like he did just after the first ominous phone call. Uh, after the man in black disappears, he highlights it out of that you know movie theater, and he heads home. And uh, I'd like to imagine him so scared that at 32 years old, he tries to climb in in bed that night with his stepfather and his mother. Just, no, Albert, good God, get out of here. But I'm scared. So am I. I'm afraid I'm going to die still taking care of my grown man's stepson. That's enough, Wilbur. Why can't you just let him sleep in our bed for one night? Absolutely not, Mildred. How am I supposed to get any sleep feeling his hairy man legs rubbing up on mine? Go to your room, Albert. It's too much, Mildred. I always told you you coddled him too much. In January 1953, the CIA creates the Robertson Panel, which I talked about, tasked with the investigation of the impact of UFO sightings. And, uh, and as part of this, they're charged with keeping a watchful eye on all groups researching and tracking UFO activity to ensure that there is no subversive goals being formulated. So Big Brother is very aware of Albert's fascination and his discussion of these reported sightings. Now, is, is this because they knew the sightings were real or because they were worried that the uh, Russians were creating hoaxes as a distraction from legitimate threats? Could groups such as Bender's IFSB be infiltrated or led by communist agents or the KGB to distract the military? to better enable a successful Soviet attack. So, uh, so thanks to Cold War paranoia, there is a decent chance that Bender really was being watched. Uh, but, but it was by his own government and, and not aliens. And maybe he just exaggerated things greatly in his head. Uh, apparently, Bender was not the only man being watched either. Uh, another account from 1953, this one leading to recognition and response from the FBI, came from an anonymous source to a UFO investigator by the name of Harold T. Wilkins in the form of a letter. The account was relayed as having been played out in the following way. 
In January 1953, according to Wilkins' account, two men wearing black suits arrived at an attorney's office and were quickly promoted to high positions. Both men were abnormally tall, roughly six and a half feet each, too thin, and their hands and wrists were oddly shaped and showed none of the standard signs of having joints. That, that is pretty unusual. Uh, no one seemed to know them, and then the director said very little when asked uh, who they were, and they just appeared, uh, quote, very weird. <laughs> and also, one of these men allegedly ha- had terrifying strength, which was displayed when he seemingly accidentally lift, uh, left a half-inch indentation in the top of a metal filing cabinet as he leaned over it. Later, supposedly uh, testing this cabinet, uh, results were found that yielded that found it out that it required a force of 2,000 pounds to create such an indent. Well, someone called the feds about these weirdos, and investigators were sent, but the two men were gone and unable to be found. Alarmed by the witness report and physical evidence of the filing cabinet, the FBI supposedly took the cabinet with them and returned to Washington, D.C. And, and this incident, I say all this kind of supposed allegedly stuff because it was reported in the August issue of Mystic Magazine, uh, not like Life or something or you know, the New York Times, it was reported in Mystic Magazine in 1954. Uh, Mystic Magazine was a monthly publication of pulp fiction tales. Highly recommended Google image search. So many cool uh, covers, like the artwork and stuff. And, but, but it was like, you know, cover stories like The Devil's Empire, How Lucifer Fell. Are there etheric armies? Firewalking, Houdini the Exposer Exposed. The Hidden Kingdom, Secret Tales of Earth. Probing the Flying Saucer Riddle. Lots of pinup art on the cover. I love that shit. Mystic Reader, alarmed at the story and the seemingly mounting number of related incidents, wrote a letter to J. Edgar Hoover demanding answers. Hoover supposedly responded uh, with the following statement. I would like to advise you that the article you mentioned is entirely incorrect with reference to the FBI, and there's no information on the matter which I can give you. Now, important to note that Harold T. Wilkins is, like Albert Bender and Fred Chrisman, a nut. Uh, He was a Pulp Fiction author himself, born in 1891, Wikipedia describes him as a British journalist known for his books on treasure hunting and pseudo-historic claims about Atlantis and South America. Uh, The dude wrote books like Mysteries and Monsters of the Deep. That's in 1948. Uh, uh, Mysteries of Ancient South America, published in 45. And then in the 1950s, on his 60s, he published stuff like Flying Saucers on the Moon, (laughs) Flying Saucers on the Attack, published in 1954. And then my favorite, in 1955, Flying Saucers Uncensored. I love that title, you know, like, like he, uh, you know, he, he held back on some stuff in 1954 with his first two saucer books. But then in 1955, he's like, you know what? Fuck it. These people need to hear the truth and I'm going to let it rip. And then he published his final work, Strange Mysteries of Time and Space in 1958. And now all of these books are on display in a Smithsonian exhibit called uh, Stuff That For Sure Totally Happened, 100%. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to give you his background and explain why I kept saying supposedly and allegedly. Did he really send a letter to the FBI? Ah, uh, maybe. Did he get a response from Hoover? Ah, uh, I guess it's possible, but I doubt it. Again, does not seem like a trustworthy source. Source. Uh, now let's check back in with another that other wackadoodle, Albert Bender. Uh, for the October, uh, or, I'm sorry, in October 1953, uh, Bender had planned to reveal, you know, his black men findings or men in black, black men. <laughs> That'd be a totally different way to take this. He was going to finally talk about some black men. He'd been thinking about them for years. No, he's going to reveal his men on black. Uh, I wrote men in black. That's where I messed up. I was like, what is men in black? I wrote, uh, yes, men in black finds. He's going to release it in that month's issue of his space review publication. But before the issue is published, he's visited by three men dressed in black who had already read the unpublished report and confirmed the findings. 
They'd warned him not to print it. These silencers, as he called them, scared Bender to the point where not only did he not publish the report, but he, uh, he left a warning in his farewell edition now of the magazine. He said, we would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of the information, we are sorry that we have been advised in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. And then he suspended publishing and then dissolved his little group. The International Flying Saucer Bureau is no more. Well, before Bender dissolved his group, he had included in it a man named Gray Barker, important in ufology, uh, ufology lore. Uh, Gray Barker joined uh, the group, uh, and uh, Bender would tell his story to Gray a few years later uh, when Barker was a 27-year-old man from Clarksburg, West Virginia, who was getting way, way into UFOs himself. Uh, while in his early 20s, Barker had begun to collect stories about the Flatwoods Monster, an alleged extraterrestrial reported by the residents of Braxton County. Back in 1952, uh, in an article for Fate magazine, that paranormal monthly magazine we talked about earlier, earlier, Barker, basing his descriptions on tape-recorded interviews with supposed witnesses, described the Flatwoods monster as approximately 10 feet tall with round, blood-red face, large, pointed, hood-like shape, eyes, eye-like shapes, which emitted uh, greenish-orange lights, uh, dark, black, or green body. Kathleen May described the figure as having small, claw-like hands. Clothing uh, like folds and a head that resembled the Ace of Spades. According to reports of this monster, the figure made a hissing sound and glided towards a group of people. And the group said they smelled a pungent mist around the creature. And later, some said they were nauseated, nauseated. And then they contacted local authorities. Local sheriff and his deputy investigated the reports of the monster, which also included uh, apparently the monster had a spaceship crash landing in the area. They searched the site. The reported monster saw, heard, smelled nothing. According to Barker's account, the next day, A.L.A. Stewart Jr., a journalist, or A. Lee Stewart Jr., a journalist working for the Braxton Democrat, claimed to discover skid marks in the field and an old gummy deposit. Now, and, those, and that was uh, subsequently attributed by UFO enthusiast groups as evidence of a saucer landing. So that's who Gray Barker is. Another dude, super weird, into weird shit. And when Bender gets freaked out and shuts down his UFO group and his monthly magazine, doesn't want to tell a story anymore, it's going to be Barker who gets him to spill the beans and, 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 and introduce the men in black to the masses. We're going to explore that in just a second. First, Barker also claimed to have his own men in black experience. How convenient. On August 28, 1953, Barker said he was at home in West Virginia and then he was visited by a special agent, a man in a black suit, claiming to be from the FBI who questioned him at length about Bender's IFSB enrollment. Barker insisted that the group was nothing more than a bunch of innocent, uh, you know, curious investigators. Just a bunch of dudes who talked a lot about aliens and, I'm guessing, often complained about not having girlfriends and uh, people who just wished their parents would be a little cooler about letting them, you know, continue to live at home and not have real jobs. Uh, eventually, the agent left, but only after trying to link Barker to a man in Florida, whose name is unknown, who claimed, who had claimed to investigate UFOs as well. And that man supposedly died from an epileptic fit, quote-unquote. And he was found with an IFSB business card on him that listed Barker as the chief investigator. And Barker was in a panic when the agent left, and he quickly wrote to Bender describing what happened. And then Bender went on to tell Barker what had happened to him, and they had to shut everything down. Over the following few years, Bender would actually tell several different versions of his experiences with Men in Black. The, the experience that freaked him out and made him want to shut everything down. It feels like it became like this classic, you know, big fish fish uh, catch story, you know, where the fish gets a little bigger with each telling, you know, it fought, fought a little harder each time you retell the story. You know, initially it was a 15-inch, one-and-a-half-pound rainbow trout that took you 20 minutes to reel in, and suddenly it's become a 30-inch, you know, 
Just, uh, you know, 15-pound steelhead took you two days to reel it. Uh, Bender would talk about the smell of brimstone, strong feelings of dread, glowing eyes as he was monitored by the men in black. In some versions, the same man from his original encounter in the theater reappears later and indicates that Bender is to follow him to a small area. This is going to get so weird in a second, so beautifully weird. Figures materialize in front of him, close in around him once they're in this. Oh, it was supposed to be a small wooded area. That was an important uh, descriptor to leave out. And uh, once he gets to this small wooded area, figures materialize in front of him. So now there's more men in black. They put his, their hands on his shoulders until he passes out. Do some kind of Spock move on him. And then when he awakens, he finds himself in a secret underground place in Antarctica. Seriously, some kind of weird Superman's Fortress of Solitude type shit. And in his Antarctic experience, Bender claims that aliens tell him, you are charged to keep our secret. We do not wish to take extreme action. And you will find that you will often consider giving away some part of this information. When you get such thoughts, you will be reminded of the consequences by headaches, which will be almost unbearable to you. At such times, beware of more serious conditions we can bring about. I fucking love stories like this. Let me get this straight. You're being followed by entities that are able to appear out of thin air. They can materialize and dematerialize at will. Pretty impressive feat. They can bend the laws of time and space just to pop in and, you know, uh, visit you at any location on Earth. And they're worried about what you've seen and they want you to be quiet. And then for some reason, they don't, you know, I don't know, just leave you in Antarctica to die. Why wouldn't wouldn't they just do that? Leave you just, if they can take you to Antarctica, they can just fucking, you know, blip you over there. Just leave you there. Then you'll definitely never tell the secrets. It's a completely untraceable crime. No one's going to find your body. Not ever. But no, 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 no. They're not going to do that. They're going to give you almost unbearable headaches from time to time. And if you try and talk, they'll do something more serious. Like like what? Like a, like a toothache? Maybe, maybe like a bad nosebleed? Bend to our will, Earthling. Tell no one. If you talk to anyone about what you've seen here today, we will give you... A most unpleasant rash. And also, not only that, you will awaken in the middle of the night, squealing in pain from from terrible um, calf muscle cramps. Yes, that's right. Go ahead, eat more bananas. Get more hydrated. It will still take several days to work out the cramp uh, pain. Ha ha ha! Lucky for us. Bender did not heed their powerful, ominous warning. And in 1956, Barker wrote a book that included both Bender's experience with the men in black and his own. So that's, that's weird also. Too scared to talk about it in 1952, but four years later, uh, totally okay. Well, in 1956, Barker is brave enough to go where no man has gone before. He's brave enough to write and publish. They knew too much about flying saucers. This is a huge book in ufology lore discusses uh, Bender's experiences or shit that he made up or shit the two of them made up at length. Harold Dahl and Fred Christman's Maury Island incident from 1947 is discussed in this book. Uh, this is the first actual book to both talk about the men in black experiences, you know, uh, have several of them kind of in this, you know, anthology and, uh, and also refer to them for the first time as men in black. So this is, you know, this is like the origin story. This is the, they knew too much about flying saucers. And, uh, while within the book, Barker didn't outright claim that the men in black were linked to the U.S. government, the implication was made clear. And, and again, that part of the story doesn't seem far-fetched to me. <laughs> the Antarctica stuff, 
Yeah, it seems a little weird. Uh, if Bender or Barker or both were truly visited by mysterious men in black suits, my money is that they were some kind of intelligence officer. CIA, FBI, something. I mean, again, the Cold War, full force this time. It's the age of McCarthyism that we referenced in that Marilyn Monroe suck and other sucks that took us through 1950s America. Anti-red paranoia is rampant. You know, people with supposed communist ties are being blacklisted from doing shit like make movies. It was a crazy time. Anyone with questionable ideas, views, or documented interests was likely to get a knock on the door from Big Brother. And the government, as we've said, was interested in UFOs at that time. They did, as we've discussed, form groups like Project Blue Book to specifically assess the threat of UFOs. You know, you know uh, there were meetings when they discussed the possibility uh, of communists working with aliens. That's so entertaining to me. Just to be a fly in the wall in some of these meetings where they're just like just throwing anything out there that could be possible. All right, boys, listen up. Something very urgent has come to our attention and must be made. Uh, organizational priority at once. Forget our inv- investigation uh, currently into whether or not the Jersey Devil is actually just a very unattractive communist Ukrainian woman who got lost in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. Put our inquiry into whether or not chupacabras are invasive species introduced into America by the Reds to kill our goats and through the entire continents, you know, ecosystem off balance lead to a governmental overthrow once our agricultural industry shuts down, we have good reason to believe that the Russians have either made a deal with the saucer-flying race of extraterrestrials to wage an intergalactic war against freedom and democracy, or that the Russians themselves have got a hold of alien technology and made their own flying saucers. And by good reason to believe, I mean we read the new issue of Fate magazine, and it gave us the goddamn heebie-jeebies. The government this time... Concerned enough about UFOs and aliens to engage in communication with wackadoodles. That part, I totally believe. Uh, okay, so now we go to 1958 and the, the development of this lore. November 22nd, 1958, an Oki civilian from Oklahoma City reaches out to J. Edgar Hoover regarding the FBI's treatment of ufologists. Saying, recently, many rumors have been printed in UFO periodicals concerning reports that special agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation have discouraged certain saucer investigators particularly Mr. Albert Bender of Bridgeport, Connecticut, from the research into the secrets of these elusive disks. And then the, you know, the letter went on to ask whether or not these reports were true. Hoover's office responded uh, saying, I am instructing a special agent of our Oklahoma City office to contact you concerning the matter mentioned. Uh, Hoover's office then contacts the Oklahoma City office, instructs an agent to contact the author of the letter and collect copies of the magazine or periodicals and any other information. And then on December 9th, 1958, the Oklahoma-based agent follows orders, reports that the Saucerian Bulletin – I love all these magazines that are floating around about flying saucers this time. The Saucerian Bulletin had published the account and was written by mm-hmm, Gray Barker. There's his name again. And Gray claimed that the men in black in question were from the FBI, Air Force, Intelligence, and CIA. December 12th, 1958, a declassified FBI report reads – Bender formed the International Flying Saucer Bureau in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1952 to look into the flying saucer mystery. In 1953, Bender allegedly stated that he knew what the saucers are. Then the three men in black suits silenced Bender to the extent that even today, Bender will not discuss the matter of his hush-up with anyone. Except for, except for the book that he put out there. Uh, <laughs> according to notes, the FBI sought to obtain a copy of They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers from Barker. Uh, within weeks of uh, January 22nd, 1959, J. Edgar Hoover had a copy, and the FBI noted that in his files uh, that it held no accounts of any information relating to silencing Bender. 
It uh, should be noted that there are no records within the declassified FBI papers of any interview with Gray Barker in 1953 or any other year. Uh, So either the FBI is covering up their interviews or Bender and Barker are full of shit or Bender and Barker met with entities they thought were FBI agents, but were really aliens or none of this happened. Bender and Barker and Hoover and the FBI don't exist. That's another possibility. None of them exist. And all of this is part of the virtual reality matrix beamed to us by the lizard Illuminati thought manipulation, thought control based, a.k.a. the moon. I'm sure conspiracy theorist David Icke would have extensive thoughts regarding that last possibility if asked. I'm sure he could talk for several days in a row without stopping about it. In 1962, Barker and Bender collaborated on a second book about men in black called Flying Saucers and the Three Men. Uh, published under Barker's own uh, uh, publishing <laughs> company, Saucerian Books. Uh, this book proposed that the men in black were themselves extraterrestrials. Ah, they've taken a twist now. They used to think they were FBI people. Now... They're extraterrestrials themselves. Uh, this book was met with harsh criticism from other ufologists, such as Jerome Clark, uh, who referred to it as a mediocre science fiction novel. That's that's bad. When other wackadoodles are like, ah, no, that's fucking nonsense. That's not how aliens exist at all. Uh, many within the ufology community question this book, have laughed in quiet or shaken their heads. However, uh, there also does seem to be a belief amongst a lot of them that these books hold some truth, that there is some element of truth in Bender's accounts. Uh, Clark sees something of value in the book, noting that something clearly scared Bender and something of value was noted at the time, which pulled Gray Barker in as well. Again, I don't know. Uh, all of these guys to me seem to have seriously overactive imaginations and all these guys are trying to make money off of strange sightings. So there's a, <laughs> there's a conflict there. You know, they're trying to sell pulp magazines and pulp books. I don't, I don't trust their motives. Maybe Bender had to shut everything down in 1953 because he was lo- losing money on his little club and publication. Then maybe, you know. Uh, other other business opportunities didn't work out, and a couple years later, he thought there was money to be made again, and he took another shot at it. Uh, in that second book, Bender states that he saw giant landing strips for UFOs, advanced technology. He states that he uh, met with reptilian descendants who informed him uh, of, of the base's 200-year history. Fucking space lizards had no idea they were going to make a cameo in this episode. Maybe the men in black work on behalf of the lizards, some kind of lizard elite security detail. Probably have to email David Icke to find out for certain. Uh, these lizards told Bender that the Nazis had found them and that they had helped the Nazis with their weaponry. That seems odd to me. If these aliens are so powerful uh, and they're helping the Nazis, why didn't the Nazis win the war? I mean, if that's true, that means that the Allies have even more bragging rights about World War II than we already believed. Not only did the Allies defeat the Nazis and Mussolini in Japan, they also kicked some alien ass. Uh, Bender also talked at one point. This is my favorite thing about everything that Bender's talked about. He talked at one point uh, – uh, about, you know, during his meeting with the lizard people, beautiful female aliens rubbed strange liquid all over his entire body. Hail Lucifina. Maybe that sexy supernatural temptress is behind all this. But for real, he claimed that beautiful lizard women, beautiful lizard women rubbed liquid onto all of his skin, all of it, even even cleaned his ween. Claimed this rub down would prevent him from ever suffering from what all humans fear, a horrible death. Sounds hot. Quick question. Uh, if you're married and hot aliens rub you down and clean your ween, is that cheating? I just want to know what's acceptable. Some hot-ass aliens ever offer to rub me down. I'm going to have to probably have a long discussion with Lindsay about this, where the, the, you know, the integrity of my mental sanity will be also discussed. Uh, while, I, while I do think all of this is absolute wackadoodleness, uh, I guess it is worth noting that Al- Alfred did live to the age of 94. 
he did die in L.A. then, you know, of natural causes. So, so maybe his life was prolonged by his, you know, alien sex shield. Uh, the space reptile creatures, uh, they, they dispatch knowledge to Albert. <laughs> uh, according to tales in, the, in his book, they, they praised his diligence. Oh, man, they were so proud of him. But they also gave him stern warnings, you know, about the future. Uh, they probably told him they were going to give him some more pesky headaches, you know, if he wasn't careful. Uh, the aliens uh, and Albert had a long Q&A session where at one point he learned that uh, the aliens like to hunt humans on occasion, just like humans like to hunt animals. That must, that must have been a fairly uncomfortable part of the interview. I'm sorry, did you just say that you like to hunt us for sport? You did. Should I be worried? No, you have no interest in hunting me. Oh, you prefer a challenge. You don't, you don't consider me a worthy kill. Okay, I guess I am both relieved and highly insulted. Can we, can we please move on to more questions? Can I get another massage? They go on to discuss religion and the universe. The aliens explain that Albert's headaches come from an implant they put in his head. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I get it. They let him know they can take over his body whenever they want, maybe give him some more headaches if he's not careful. So now the idea of Men in Black is really out there in the world, at least in the sci-fi, pulp fiction, paranormal fringes of the world, which was pretty big, actually. That's pretty popular stuff in, like, the 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they've been talked about in a few books now. They've, uh, they've been published in Tales of UFO magazines. And then uh, future UFO magazines will continue to reference these tales for decades. It becomes part of modern American UFO mythology. And uh, new stories of men in black sightings start to pour in over the years. And this next men in black story involves a future suck topic. I don't know exactly when we're going to get to it, but I do know a lot of you are patiently or impatiently waiting to hear it. Uh, the Mothman. Yes, December 15th, 1967. The Point Pleasant Silver Bridge over the Ohio River collapses, killing 46 people and largely, if not entirely, ends stories of local encounters with Mothman. Uh, between the time in which Mothman first appeared and Point Pleasant... On the date of the bridge's collapse, the men in black supposedly came calling. And Mary Heyer, a local journalist, kept note. Her recorded accounts detail a strange man of small stature, less than five feet tall, with oddly hypnotic eyes, thick-soled shoes, and odd interactions. When he approached her, he was completely taken uh, with her ballpoint pen, so she let him have it. And he was, he was happy to have it, and he responded with an odd sort of cackle-like laugh that she didn't care for. Then he left quickly. And that's when she knew he was not of this world. Only an alien cackles like that when given a pen. It was an alien cackle if there ever was one. A variety of men in black type characters then pop up during the Mothman sightings after that. One in particular uh, speaks to Hire again, you know, uh, and uh, apparently, you know, talks to her about the, there's being a lot, of, a lot of UFO activity in the area and starts to interrogate her, you know, question her about the various incidents, ask her if uh, she's going to continue to publish articles on the strange happenings. Uh, she tells this men in black person that she is going to continue publishing things, and then he leaves and she never sees any of them again. Again, uh, not particularly menacing. You know, let me get this straight. They ask some questions. One of them cackles. One of them likes her pen. And then uh, when she tells them she's going to keep uh, reporting what she wants to report, they leave. Man, those guys must have had their asses chewed by their men in black supervisors when they got back to HQ. What do you mean you just left? Tell me you gave her a headache. Tell me you gave her a mild headache. What about a muscle cramp? A nosebleed? An earache? You liked her because she gave you a cool pen. You fool. You're fired. Give me a badge. You're no longer a man in black. You've been demoted to a boy in salmon-colored capri pants. Keep it up. You'll be a dude in cargo shorts. Definitely not a man in black. Uh, and then there are many more supposed sightings. Before we look at a few more of them, let's, ha let's head on over to the idiots of the internet. Idiots of the 
I was hoping for an amazing idiot to the internet this week, uh, considering the subject matter, and was not disappointed. Fantastic. So rich in wackadoodleness. The first video I looked at was called The Real Men in Black, posted by UFO Hub. That was a channel. It's ufologist uh, Nick Redfern talking about the history of the men in black, covering essentially what we've covered so far today. He talks a lot about Albert Bender and Maury Island and all that stuff. Uh, Nick is a 40, 54-year-old uh, British man now living in Dallas. Uh, and he's a big current name in ufology. He's a leading contributor to Phenomena Magazine, a UK magazine that describes itself as looking into the whole realm of the strange, profound, unknown, and unexplained, delving into subjects of uh, paranormal, ufolo ufological, uh, cryptozoological, and parapsychological. Can, can they get some fucking bigger words? They just like to make themselves feel good with their huge titles. And 14 events. Nick's appeared on History Channel shows like Monster Quest. Uh, he's appeared on UFO Hunters, on sci-fi uh, channels, Proof Positive, so many other shows. He's written books like uh, Three Men Seeking Monsters, Six Weeks in Pursuit of Werewolves, Lake Monsters, Giant Cats, Ghostly Devil Dogs, UFO Top Secrets Exposed, so many others. So, so make of that what you will. And under this video, my favorite post comes in from user K. Tangney, who writes... Not all UFOs are visible. In 1993, me and a coworker on a farm at Upper River Kangaroo Valley, New South Wales, Australia, had a craft fly over us that we could hear and feel but saw nothing. We could hear it on its approach, which sounded like a humming transformer. We felt the displacement of air as it flew over us, but we saw nothing. And what we could sense was at least 50 meters long. You guys saw an invisible UFO. Interesting. How perfect uh, for protecting yourself from people trying to prove you wrong. I would have taken a picture, you asshole. It was invisible. Uh, what a whole new avenue of the paranormal to explore. You don't even uh, have to see paranormal entities to have paranormal encounters. This brings everything back into being, you know, being possible. Sasquatch is real. Why do, why do we find footprints but no body? Because he's fucking invisible, okay? Where's the Loch Ness Monster? Invisible. Jersey Devil? Yeah. Yeah, of course it's out there. You just can't see the son of a bitch most of the time. In all seriousness, what if UFOs uh, were were uh, invisible? What if they could become invisible? I guess that's not actually that far-fetched or idiotic. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if they could make it here from some other galaxy, if their technology is that advanced for them to, like, you know, uh, zip in and out of the sky, at, you know, like uh, at just preposterous speeds, why is invisibility out of the question? You know, that's interesting. Uh, a 9-11 conspiracy nut makes their way into the comment section. User solved 9-11 posts. Remember 9-11 was a false flag. Do you think the UFO attack could also be a false flag? Use your brains, America. Oh, solve 9-11. Telling people to use their brains as if you had one. You, you know the content's going to be good when, when username solved 9-11 is posting it. Uh, I just like how he presents 9-11 as being a uh, undisputed false flag. For sure it was a false flag. Everybody knows it. Hey, remember when the U.S. government, for sure, absolutely, fact, killed its own people in 9-11? No, no, I don't remember that, you paranoid fuck. Uh, and now UFO attacks are false flags? In, in what way? The government has insanely advanced flight and cloaking technology, and this is using it to experiment and anally probe its, its own citizens? What are you talking about? There's just – these people make no sense because let's play out the logic. If we did have that technology, 
right? If if the if the U.S. government did have like flying saucers, flying saucers that could turn invisible, all these kind of you know crazy things, you know, men in black that could just appear out of nowhere. If all of that was possible based on some kind of military technology, why would we fuck with ourselves? Are you kidding me? Let me get this straight. We, we can fly anywhere. We can secretly abduct whoever we want, and we're going to kidnap ourselves. No. No, we'd be fucking with, I don't know, our Canuck northern neighbors or, you know, or our Mexican neighbors down south. Russia, Japan, Nigeria, Greenland, anywhere but here. That's the dumbest idea ever. Uh, user Brett Ware posts, Nick Redfern is such an awesome guy. He's real. Nothing crazy to capture attention, just straightforward. Nothing crazy. He's straightforward. He wrote a book called Ghostly Devil Dogs. He wrote another book called Giant Cats. Oh, oh yeah. Now he's super stable. Uh, and then user Big Daddy leads uh, uh, me to some internet gold uh, that I had never heard of before, posting Dan Aykroyd had a Men in Black experience. I believe him. Dan Aykroyd, the Canadian star of Ghostbusters. Saturday Night Live, The Blues Brothers, Driving Miss Daisy, The Great Outdoors, so many other great movies. He's a Men in Black believer? Sure is. I googled Dan Aykroyd, Men in Black, and I found another video called Dan Aykroyd on Real Men in Black, posted by Guy Merritt. This is a video about how in 2002, Dan Aykroyd filmed eight episodes of a sci-fi series about UFOs called Out There that never aired. During a break in taping of the last episode... Something strange happened that Aykroyd believes was a Men in Black encounter. Let's listen to that now. The last show we did, I had both Bassett, who uh, has the, the UFO time clock, and then Greer. Both Bassett and Greer were there. They were my two guests for the day. Mm-hmm. Well, the show was canceled that afternoon. And um, I was outside. Oh. In, before I knew it was canceled, in between the interviews. And... Uh, I was outside, and Britney Spears called me because she wanted to, me to appear on Saturday Night Live with her. Mm. And so I picked. I was outside having a cigarette. The phone rang. Uh, I, I, oh, Britney, how you doing? Oh, sure, of course I will. I turned away like this. I turned back, and there was a black Ford across the road, a black Ford sedan. Uh-huh. And I, I was trying to look at the plate, and the plate seemed kind of like fuzzy. And I was, you know, definitely a police car. And two guys were there, and a big, big, tall guy got out of the back seat. Oh. And he stood in the street. On um, on 42nd Street it was. We, we were at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue. And he looked right at me. Uh-oh. And literally, I mean, I was on the phone. Hey, oh, sure, of course I'd like for the show. Saw the Ford, went back like this, turned back like a half second later, and it was gone. And that <sighs> car did not go past me. It did not make a U-turn because I would have seen 42nd Street. I would have seen that thing take a U-turn and go mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. That car vanished. That car was a cloaked vehicle of some type. Yep. And whether this was like a warning to me, because the guy cut out of the backseat, gave me a real dirty look. Oh. That car vanished. I know what I saw. And, uh, you know, I, I, it, was, it was just this fast. It was, oh, hi, Brittany, sure. Oh, of course, I'd love to. Guy gives me a dirty look. Oh, well, sure. Mm-hmm. Car gone. That's what happened. And uh, then two hours later, uh, we were told we were not to continue taping, and the show was canceled, and none of them would air. Whoa. The man in black gave him the stink eye. I love how weak the men in black seem to be. Jesus. Right? They, they didn't even give him a headache. They didn't even give him a weird laugh or, you know, take a pen. They gave him a dirty look. Oh, no. Not a dirty look. Did he see something? And then his show was canceled. Maybe the show was canceled because it fucking sucks. Maybe it's just a shitty show. 
You know, did he really see some men in black or, or was that whole story just an excuse to constantly name drop Britney Spears? Uh, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here and see if other people's men in black tales are, are better than Dan Aykroyd's. Idiots of the internet. 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 1968. We're back in the timeline. The year after the Mothman men in black sighting, a man named Jack Robertson, who was the secretary for the National UFO Conference, and his wife, Mary, had a series of encounters with the men in black, which resulted in a now infamous photo, supposedly of a man in black. In addition to Jack having a prior fascination with the paranormal, uh, I mean, he, you know, he was the secretary of the National UFO Conference, for God's sake. Uh, his wife, Mary, also had some interesting beliefs. Before her men in black encounter, she was already on record <laughs> as having claimed to have seen fairies as an adult in the tree near her apartment. She also claimed to be a psychic, thought she could contact the dead with a Ouija board, and occasionally would hear disembodied footsteps. So she is mentally in tip-top shape. Prior to her sighting, uh, she has quite the wackadoodle <laughs> resume. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, clearly. Uh, and then in 1968, she reaches out to Timothy Green Beckley, a uh, UFO researcher and an author who has been an a- you know active man in black hunter, uh, a man who straight up looks exactly like the sad stereotype of a UFO hunter. He looks so incredibly mentally unstable. Do a Google image search for Timothy Green Beckley. You will not be disappointed. He, he looks like he should be one of the lone gunmen from the X-Files. Uh, he's worked as a writer for the National Enquirer, you know, that, uh, that hard-hitting journalistic paper. Uh, he was the editor of something called the Conspiracy Journal. He's like a poor man's Alex Jones. He looks like he lives inside a doomsday bunker and only eats MREs and only drinks water that he's purified with his own homemade water purification tablets. Uh, Mary also reached out to Jim Mosley, a UFO researcher who published a newsletter called Saucer News, a man who'd worked in uh, amateur archaeology before the UFO sightings of 1947 and then switched his interest over into flying saucers. So she reaches out to these men because she's afraid of a a darkly clad man in black, a man with a black hat and sunglasses who had been watching her and her husband's apartment from the doorway of a nearby building, and he gave off startling... In a, in, a, in a disconcerting continence. And it put her husband Jack's nerves on edge. Jack was nervous as shit all the time. Uh, strange things were happening within their home as well. Clicking sounds could be heard on their phones. You know, were they being tapped? Their important research files seemed to be tampered with. I can't find my fairy documents anymore. Someone's taken them. Uh, Beckley and Mosley headed out for Jersey City to solve the mystery, confront the men in black. Uh-huh. They, were, they, were, they weren't afraid of a headache. They were going to get right in his face. And uh, while driving down the residential road leading to their apartment, they quickly saw a man standing in the recess of a doorway in a neighboring building, and he fit the men in black description perfectly. In a near panic, Beckley took a photo. Mal Mosley wept like a baby. Now, while Mosley quickly parked the car just around the corner, the two raced back, but the men in black was gone. He simply vanished. And uh, Mary claims that she never saw him again. You can find this picture online. It doesn't, it doesn't look, it's not convincing of anything. It's just like a dude. It's like a dude in a suit, like a normal looking dude in a suit. Uh, Mosley uh, would later say that he didn't think he'd actually seen a man in black today. He thought it was just a bookie, someone maybe running a scam or maybe some drugs, and that Mary's paranoia had led to other conclusions. Beckley stands by the idea that this person was indeed a man in black, and there's no other explanation for his fast appearance or fast disappearance, excuse me. And again, though, I, I've seen a picture, and it just looks like a dude in a black suit. Nothing ominous. Again, I love that the, that the worst thing that these people have done is given someone a headache still. 
If I'm going to be harassed by a paranormal entity, I really hope it's a man in black because they seem just fucking weak. Okay, let's jump all the way to 2008 for one one more. (laughs) Uh, In 2008, Raven Mendel, a Michigan resident, claims she was harassed by uh, a man in black. Now, Raven works as a neurologist, and uh, she is highly esteemed in her field, uh, and she's written several critically acclaimed novels. No, of course that's not true. There's no, that's never the kind of fucking person that, that that talks about this stuff. No, she's a self-described Wiccan priestess, cryptozoologist, author, radio host. Uh, are you a radio host? It was internet radio. Has been featured on the History Channel's Monster Quest, uh, where she was uh, filmed pursuing werewolves. Yep, she's a werewolf hunter. So again, super credible witness. In April of 2008, Men- uh, Mendel's husband, Adam had a strange sensation where he felt dun, 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 a rush of wind pass by him in the apartment. The air conditioning wasn't running, and there was no source for it, yet he felt it. He felt it, you guys. Then, on the evening of April 16th, a week after feeling a little bit of wind, Mendel had an encounter with the men in black. Two men in black exited the apartment across from where she was living, despite the fact that it was a vacant rental. They climbed into a black Lincoln. They drove away. Raven at the time was playing Frisbee with a disc called an alien flyer that had a picture of an alien on it. Coincidence? I don't think so. Those motherfuckers were warning her to stop playing Frisbee. It was bringing her too close to the truth. At first, Raven thought they were Mormons. That's not, that's not, that's not one of my jokes. Seriously. She thought they were Mormons at first. She's like, ah, fucking Mormons. <laughs> trying to stop me playing my frisbee but then she was convinced otherwise she, she walked towards their Lincoln to see their plates uh, and then they deliberately took off to evade her and in the following days the family's phone would ring but when they would answer it no one was on the phone then one night while trying to fall asleep Mendel was so overcome with a terrifying feeling that she's decided to stop all UFO research that's right. A few days after that psychic event, a black luxury car began following her when she was walking her dog. Two men were inside, dressed in black. The car stopped right next to her, escalated her fear dramatically when the passenger moved to get out. He was going to get out of the car, you guys. Mendel countered that move by taking out her cell phone to indicate she was calling someone, and I guess that was enough to scare the men in black away. The threat of possibly calling someone. Again, Least intimidating paranormal people ever. Raven's husband, Adam, also the victim of scare tactics. He heard some whispering sounds once within their apartment that he didn't care for. Not whisperings. What next? Another breeze? The scariest event happened to them when handprints were left on the bathroom mirror that were sort of, this is, (laughs) this is the quote, sort of sliding down the glass. There were some sort of sliding handprints. The same day, her daughter took a shower and somehow received bruises on her arm, she thinks, that did kind of match the hand size prints from the mirror. Did she get bruises that way? Was it from the men in black or was it from Mommy Raven shaking her? Why don't you believe, Mommy? I did see men in black. I swear I did. I am a Wiccan priestess. I will catch a werewolf. There are fairies in the tree outside. Why won't you believe Mommy? Then finally, on February 11, 2009, Mendel has a nightmare slash night terror at 1.21 a.m. When she awakens, her body is painfully tingling. 
Like she slept on some part of her arm wrong. It was waking up again. That could totally explain it. But nope. Men in black. A loud noise was humming. She was trying to scream for her husband, but she couldn't. She was focused on the curtain and whatever was out there. No description is provided. And then she, and then, and then she yelled, I hate you, you son of a bitch. I hate you. And then uh, she woke up and she was scared. And that's it. That's when she decided for sure to stop focusing on the UFOs. And she, she, re, she changed her focus. And now, uh, again, because she is a super mentally put together human, human being, she is now focusing mostly on dream readings. I shit you not. She has a dream reading website, dreamreadings.webs.com, where you can pay to have uh, a reading where nothing will make sense. You can pay to have someone make up something about your nonsensical dream. You can pay to have a lunatic ramble unintelligently about what you dreamed about. I'm adding a link to that in the episode description because I think it, it, it's fucking hilarious. It amuses me greatly. And that takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Okay, so now you know the backstory to the inspiration for Men in Black, the film franchise. Interesting stuff. Uh, do I believe it? Uh, no. No, I don't. And I'll tell you why. Because none of these sightings are given by anyone remotely credible. All of these people are just on the fringest of the fringe. You know, why couldn't the men in black approach like the owner of an accounting firm or a physics professor or an orthopedic surgeon or someone who had never dabbled in UFO lore before? Why couldn't someone like that see a UFO and then claim to see the men in black, right? I can't find a single such incident. They only seem to visit people who are hoping to see that kind of shit, which is very suspicious. And you might think like, yeah, but those are the people who are digging the closest to the truth. And that's why they had to shut them down. Well, that's the other reason I don't believe it because they didn't shut them down. They would just give them like a fucking headache or leave. When they hopped on the phone, (laughs) that's like, that's not intimidating. I believe in the late 40s and 50s and maybe in the 60s, some ufologists were were questioned by government agents. That makes sense to me. I think that's probably what happened. They were questioned by some people wearing suits that may have been black. And then, you know, they just greatly embellished those stories. Uh, And again, I believe that could have happened because, you know, those guys were worked up about communists and all kinds of stuff back then. But, uh... But but so so what did happen? There's some other explanations if the men in black aren't real. They're found from the web. For Albert Bender in particular, some some think that uh, giving uh, you know noting his debilitating migraines, dizzy spells, and frequent kind of sulfur-based smells that he may have suffered from epilepsy. Uh, there are roughly forty variations of that neurological condition. Uh, Jacksonian epilepsy, you know, can have symptoms including hallucinations, fear, lightheadedness, confusion. Can result in fant fantas fantasmia. Smelling something that isn't real, I probably fucked that up. I'm sure you'll let me know. Uh, it doesn't seem likely that epilepsy would explain all of what Bender saw, you know, or claimed, but it could have been combined with some sort of mental illness. Dude just, you know, could have also just straight up lied to get some attention. I mean, people do that all the time. Uh, some mystics, some mystics feel that the men in black can be an example of what's uh, called in mystic circles as a tulpa. A tulpa is a being or object which is created through spiritual or mental powers Essentially, a, uh, a willed imaginary friend that can act independently to your own consciousness. And it's not like that, you know, is a fact, but some people believe. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe that's what Bojangles, Nimrod, Lucifina, Pootie, and Juju are. Maybe the rest of the time so characters. Maybe they're tulpas. Shit, man. Maybe I thought them up originally, but now they have independent consciousness. Now they're out there fucking smashing puppies or doing whatever they need to do. Uh, with this theory, the men in black could be supernatural manifestations of a fiercely imagined creation. You know, that feeds off emotion and belief in them. 
And so, and so maybe they, they, through this kind of hypothesis, you know, Bender thought him up, but he was so focused on him, he kind of, you know, willed them into existence, essentially, you know? Uh, and that's why they're kind of stuck in that 50s look, because that's when he thought of them. That's when they have the, the, the 50s kind of suit they're wearing. Some also uh, think that they're some kind of vampire sucking our, on our emotions, some kind of psychic vampire instead of blood. Um, and then going with what I said earlier, you know, other people just think they uh, were government officials, possibly working with the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena. It was established in 1956. And that was, I guess, one of the most well-respected of the various investigative groups. And uh, this, this group had a reputation of taking things a bit too far when it interviewed witnesses. And, uh, you know, so maybe they just, uh, maybe this, you know, tried to intimidate some people. Who knows? Uh, could have been time travelers is what some people think. You know, they, they uh, could have been demons, other people think. If you watch a, any Men in Black video on the web and read the comment section, a lot of people think they're demons. Uh, you know, did demons capitalize on Bender's paranoia regarding FBI agents and manifest as such to pull him into the darkness of the occult? That's a belief some people have. Who the hell knows? All I know is that I had a good time digging into this stuff, into the origin of this particular bit of what I believe to be some modern folklore, folklore that uh, ended up making, uh, making its way into some good movies that I enjoyed. Uh, so now let's take a look back. Let's take a look back at all this with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. While the Maury Island incident may have been the first modern Men in Black side, uh, type sighting, it was Albert Bender's story that cemented the Men in Black into U- UFO mythology canon. Uh, when his sighting story was printed in Gray Barker's 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Number two, the men in black uh, didn't seem very threatening. You know, they ruined breakfast for the Moore Island guys. They gave Bender headaches, but also gave him some sort of Antarctica sex massage. You know, they laughed in a way that bothered the Mothman reporter. They gave Dan Aykroyd a stern look. If you're trying to be menacing men in black, you're not doing a very good job. Number three. Raven Mendel seems absolutely fucking insane. I don't believe for a second she's ever seen anything. She's a werewolf hunter. She's a person who believes the men in black harassed her while she was tossing a frisbee. And uh, now she works as a dream reader. She is uh, 100% wackadoodle. Number four, the government really did investigate UFO sightings in the 40s, 50s, 60s, possibly still do. Who knows? Could be some other secret group. If there, if there really are men in black, I'm guessing... They, uh, they get government health and retirement benefits. Number five, new info. Uh, last week on May 6th, the Daily Star, a British tabloid, reported that some YouTube uh, ufologists snuck under the Royal, Royal Air, Force, uh, Air Force's Rudlow Manor in Bath, a place that's come to be known in some circles as the UK's Area 51, after secret files were released at the National Archives, indicating the site was a center for UFO investigations in the 50s. And these guys were chased away by some angry-looking men who could either be men in black or security personnel who want those idiots to get the fuck off private property. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The men in black sucked. That was a nice little break, man, from the murder and despair we've had recently. Especially since we're having the next week's episode. Well, it's going to be dark. You'll find out in a second. I, uh, I needed that little, little palate cleanser. Thanks again to everyone who has downloaded my new stand-up uh, album, Maybe I'm the Problem, from iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play. Much appreciated. Thankful it's uh, still been selling well and making people happy. Thanks to Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, Lindsey Cummins, Josh Krell, the entire Time Suck team for their help. Huge thanks again. Oh, yeah, yeah, and uh, and also, gosh dang it, I um, 
I, I did this last week. I, I have my little kind of template of thanks, and I got to get uh, Alex Dugan. Got to get his name, Alex Dugan as well, man. Huge how he's been kicking ass on email organization. And my sister again, Donna Hale, uh, for helping research another episode. She's been doing a couple now lately. Uh, next Monday, we go dark again with another Space Lizard voted in topic. Those $5 a month Patreon supporters, those secret suck listers, uh, they get to vote on topics in the app, and they pick the first and third topics every month with their votes. Uh, next Monday, they've picked Japan's Suicide Forest. That was the vote winner for the second half of last month. And, and it looks like they're going to pick the Golden State Killer after that. It's way in the lead with one day left to vote. Uh, in 2003, 105 bodies were found in Japan's Sea of Trees, a forest on the northwestern flank of Japan's Mount Fuji, thriving on 30 square kilometers of hardened lava laid down by the last major eruption of Mount Fuji in 864 CE. 78 dead bodies were found in this little patch of forest in 2002. In 2010, the police recorded more than 200 people having attempted suicide in that forest. 54 were successful or very unsuccessful. depending on how you want to look at that. What the fuck is going on over there? We're going to suck into it. Good excuse to look into Japanese culture a bit and to remind everyone, don't fucking do it. Find a reason to live. They are out there. And now let's find out what you suckers have been drawn into this past week uh, with some pretty funny Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. All right, some fun update, <laughs> updates coming in the, uh, from, this, from this past Friday's Jack the Ripper episode. Uh, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, this is your spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for the Jack Ripper ep- uh, episode. Stop listening right now. Stop listening if you don't want to have one of the jokes in that episode ruined for you. I'm serious. This is your last chance. You're going to ruin it for yourself. Okay. All right. You've been warned. You've been warned. Time sucker. Uh, Brandy Trayer wrote in about a skeleton she found in her husband's family tree uh, based on that episode. Uh, Brady said, Dear Team Suck, just finished the Jack the Ripper Suck, and all the syphilis talk reminded me of uh, stories of my husband's grandmother. Apparently, she had, quote, dementia and lived with them uh, while he was a teenager. She would do things like forget who she was and others, you know, around her, who they were. One day after running around with a steak knife, threatening him and his sister, she cut the straps off her purse. When his, uh, when his mom rushed home after the knife chasing, she was obviously called. Uh, Nana blamed my husband for the cut purse straps. There's lots of similar stories I've been told over the years. Having to take the stove knobs off when they left her in the house. Taking the remotes too, though she can't remember why. Uh, just after... Uh, my hubby and I started dating. My mother-in-law finally told us that Nana did not have dementia. She had an untreated case of syphilis. We fucking lost it when she told us that Nana used to troll the shipyard at Navy Base <laughs> where they lived and must have contracted the disease but never got it treated. Uh, once they took her to the doctor for her dementia, it was too late to do anything about it. Hope this story made you laugh as much as we did. Keep on bringing the good suck, your faithful space lizard, Brady. It did make me laugh, Brady. I know someone getting dementia from uh, venereal disease is not inherently funny, but when I read Nana used to troll the shipyard and Navy base, I lost it. <laughs> and by the way, you I don't know if this is the truth, but the way you phrased that story, it, it made it seem like like later in life she was trolling the Navy base. You know, like like maybe like after she was already a Nana, she's just this uh, cougar, you know, troll and somehow getting syphilis recently, uh, fairly recently. Man, syphilis, man, no joke. No joke. Actually, though, it was a joke that some of you fell for, and this is the spoiler thing, uh, this last Friday, and it made me so happy. 
time sucker Buck, I'm going to leave his last name out of it for his privacy, uh, fell, from my, <laughs> fell from my fake syphilis PSA, writing in, Dear Master of the Suck, you goddamn son of a bitch. LOL, I'm listening to the Jack the Ripper of the episode, and you're ranting on and on about syphilis, and I'm sitting at work thinking, oh, shit. By the time you came around to saying it was, <laughs> it was all made up, I was on the verge of getting tested. You got me. Fuck you and keep on sucking. I love it. I love uh, what a roller coaster ride you got to go on, Buck. Right? For a minute, you're so worried. You're feeling sick to your stomach. Why did I do that? That wasn't worth it. I'm such an idiot. Then such sweet relief. You know? So for a second, you're less happy than you were previous year. But then you get to be more happy than you were. So you're welcome. And you weren't the only one. A friend of mine who listens, whose name I won't give, texted me over the weekend. Someone who may or may not be part of the Bit Elixir app design team wrote in saying, thanks, Dan. I thought I had syphilis for a minute. And if you want to make fun of me on Time Suck, feel free. I'm an idiot and I deserve it. I love it. So good. Let's do one more. This one came in just as I sat down to record. Longtime listener sent in the following message, asked not to be named. <laughs> and this is the last update for today. Uh, the subject was, you suck in the worst way. I completely fell for the syphilis misdirection, the Jack the Ripper suck, and you had me worried. The one and only, well, I guess two and only time I ever have had sex without a condom was a few years ago. I allowed Lucifina <laughs> to guide my genitals into an experience with one of my coworkers at the time after hanging out and going on a hike together. Long story short, she stayed the night and we had some fun. I didn't have a condom, neither did she, but the dick, wa- <laughs> but the dick wants what it wants. Stupid. Not long after, I came to my senses and decided it was a bad plan to continue. Uh, we finished our evening sans hanky-panky and got some rest. But then literally less than a week later, I was spending time with one of my best friends. Uh, we uh, had, on other occasions, had had sexual attention but never went all the way. This night was the exception. I still had not bought any condoms. I wasn't expecting to get laid again in less than a week. Same shit went down, though fortunately the night concluded with some amazing oral sex instead. This all happened in June 2016, just... <laughs> Just under two years ago. And I'm thinking, shit. And this is based on what I had said in Jack Herbert. The timeline is right. I I do get itchy from time to time. I don't know about smell, but I'm for sure more tired lately. Uh, Although that's probably because of a new job and the need to wake up at 4 a.m. to beat L.A. traffic. You got me, Dan. I have for sure learned to always use protection. And if it's not available, go down on her instead. Even Even if. (laughs) Uh, even if all the shit you said was made up, the possibility spooked me enough to never even risk that shit again. Thanks a lot. Uh, ha ha. (laughs) It makes me laugh so hard uh, that this kind of stuff and why I did that, why I had so much fun doing that mystery is because I've, I've been there. I, I, I've taken, you know, when I was younger, several STD tests after some unwise decisions and waiting on those results is the absolute worst. Uh, one time I got so worked up. I convinced myself that my pee burned, that burned when I peed. I convinced myself that I had some very unusual itching. I got so worked up, I ended up paying over $1,000 for extra blood work that the doctor didn't want me to do. I had to pressure the doctor into doing more blood work, and I'm not kidding. I pressured the doctor. I insisted that he look inside my dick. Like, he didn't want to. He's like, you don't have it. I'm just looking. I was like, just look in there. He's like, you don't have it. I'm just, just open. Just, would you just look in it? Just look in it for a second. And he, like, begrudgingly looked in there. Uh, I was convinced. Turns out nothing. All in my head. Everything came back negative. Uh, so wrap it up, time suckers. Wrap it up. And that wraps up today's time sucker updates. 
time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everybody. You time suckers, you beautiful meat sacks. If you get followed by some men in black, uh, don't worry about it. Just get some extra aspirin. Uh, apparently a headache is the, is the worst they can dish out. And keep on sucking. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck.